Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hastie. Welcome back, everybody. It's the penultimate episode of Season 7 of Ohio vs. the World. Today we're talking Ohio versus Con Artists, Episode 11. We're going to be talking about one of the most famous con women in Ohio history, Cassie Chadwick. We'll go back to the Gilded Age, one of my favorite time periods, to tell the story of Cassie Chadwick, a con woman from Cleveland, Ohio, in the early 1900s. Her trial was the biggest story in the country and brought her face-to-face in a Cleveland courtroom with the richest man in America, Andrew Carnegie. We'll actually tell the story of both Carnegie and Chadwick, both immigrants who started with nothing and became insanely wealthy, one using more legal means than the other. But we'll share how Carnegie got involved in this elaborate con and how Cassie Chadwick used his name and wealth to defraud banks all over Ohio to the tune of something like $60 million. We're joined by two great guests today, author William Hazelgrove, his new book, Greed in the Gilded Age, the brilliant con of Cassie Chadwick from 2022, and our most common recurring guest, the great historian Bruce Carlson, the host of one of our favorite podcasts of all time, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, on the Airwave Media Podcast Network, and go to MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com or anywhere you find your pod. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to EvergreenPodcast.com. You can hear all of our past 98 episodes, whatever it is, all their great shows on the network. There's a bunch of great history shows like Presidency of the United States, hosted by our friend. He's been on the show before, Jerry Landry. There's 10 shows, I think, on their History Channel right now, including Ohio vs. the World. Go check them out. There's some really, really cool shows on evergreenpodcast.com backslash history. Thanks for sticking with us through this season. We need an extra week to get this one out because we took a pretty long vacation to Florida between episodes. That was going great until, of course, Hurricane Ian showed up. Really the first hurricane I've been involved with since I was a kid on the Outer Banks, but this was a historic storm. We were more dealing with Tropical Storm Ian by the time it got to us, but... As someone who normally you know goes down to Fort Myers Beach and Marco Island, that area of southwest Florida, that's a storm that'll never be forgotten there. Fort Myers Beach is basically wiped off the map. Sanibel, all these great places, and Fort Myers Beach, a real slice of old Florida that, that I don't think we're ever going to see come back the way it was. So sad to see that destruction. I'd ask you to text Ian, I-A-N, to 90999. Make a $10 donation to the Red Cross efforts down there. Clean up, save lives that were affected. A lot of them still don't have power. Other houses obviously have been completely destroyed, their lives destroyed, and many who lost their lives down there. So again, text Ian to 90999, uh, and the Red Cross will, will happily take any small donation you could give. We're excited to share the con story of Cassie Chadwick today. Her trial in 1905, so covered by the newspapers, it actually bumps Teddy Roosevelt's inauguration below the fold on some papers. Especially in the Midwest and in the East, it was involuntary involvement of the country's richest man, Andrew Carnegie. 
and the boldness of her con that made this story so, so huge at its time. The fact that a woman could pull something off this elaborate was just not to be believed in Gilded Age misogynistic America. We call them con artists, and there really is some artistry to what Cassie Chadwick, that's not even her real name, was able to steal. She lived a life of extreme opulence, all built on a mountain of her own lies. But they're victims to her con. Many people lost their savings and livelihoods due to that greed, and we'll talk about that as well. So check your pocketbook, because it's episode 11, Ohio vs. Con Artists. The con artist is all over today's film and TV because what our sympathy toward con artists reveals is how little value we place on the truth now. What matters is what you can get people to believe, how much you can profit from your own self-created myth, and that's a scary world to be living in. Our episode today is about an all-time con woman, Cassie Chadwick from Cleveland, Ohio. But her story actually began in Canada, and her name was Elizabeth Bigley. She was born in 1857, about 90 miles west of Toronto. Our first guest is William Hazelgrove, best-selling author. I became aware of William when I read his book, Madam President, about Edith Wilson. An incredible story. She really was our country's first female president, basically taking over in 1919-1920 when her husband Woodrow Wilson had a debilitating stroke. He was hidden away, and she was making policy decisions, running the day-to-day at the White House. William's book's going to make a great movie, maybe sooner than later, but today we're discussing his new book, Greed in the Gilded Age, about the infamous con artist Cassie Chadwick, or as she was born, Elizabeth Bigley. Williams' book details Cassie's life of fraud, and it seems to answer the question about whether someone can be a criminal by nature, and how the subject of our show today finds her way to the Buckeye State from her native Canada. Are criminals born? You know, do they have something right off the get-go? If she had a lisp, a little deaf in one ear, had a tendency to going to spells, people said, where she'd just be gone. At a very young age, before she was even 20, she takes a little card and goes into a bank. And on the card, it says, I'm an heiress. I'm going to inherit $15,000. And this is at a time when bankers lent on perceived wealth. You know, today we have our FICO references. It takes 60 days. You know, then if you walked in and somebody said, wow, this is a wealthy woman, uh, we should lend her money. They would give her a line of credit right there. And so that's what she did. She had uh, dressed up in one of her mom's dresses. She comes from this not exactly poor, poor family, but just barely hanging on. Father works for the railroad. She you know, makes her own hat, has these shoes. She shows spruces up, puts on her mom's makeup, goes in and basically sort of beguiles these bankers. And she has a Oh, strange way of talking in this very breathy way. Uh, she's very attractive. And she walks out with a line of credit, goes and spreads bad checks all over town. They catch up with her. They have a trial where she acts insane. And they say, well, we'll let you off, but you've got to leave. So her family ships her off to America, stay with her sister. Elizabeth Bigley comes to America at the perfect time for someone willing to do anything to be wealthy. It's called the Gilded Age. The late 19th to early 20th century period of rapid economic expansion within the United States, where we become a player on the world economic stage. Greed is good in the Gilded Age. And she's not Cassie Chadwick at this point, but she's still running scams, don't worry. So in a way, this is great for her because she's read about America. America is going through the call the Gilded Age now, which is just this incredible period of economic growth. To her, the streets are lined with gold. And one thing Cassie Chadwick wants very early is to be rich, 
to be able to eat in fine restaurants, to dress like a million dollars and to wear lots of jewelry. And she's determined to get that. And so this is the environment that she comes into at this very young age. Elizabeth Bigley is living in Cleveland with her sister and her sister's husband, but she cannot fight her con artist urge. She starts taking out fraudulent loans in Cleveland, and her collateral is not exactly her own. Gilded Age Cleveland is a boomtown. It's home to many of the richest American businessmen at the time. Go back and listen to our episode of High vs. Wealth from 2019 about John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. The money passing through Cleveland in the 1870s and 1880s is astounding. That's when Elizabeth first gets there, but she backsteps her own sister and brother-in-law just to try and get ahead in Gilded Age Cleveland. Yeah, so she goes to live with her sister who's living this middle-class life with her husband. You know, first she sort of behaves. Uh, she works for a dressmaker. But that doesn't last long. She immediately goes to loan sharks and starts getting loans. Well, she does this for a while, and then they say, look, we need some collateral. And she says, well, what about the furniture in my house? And so she puts up her sister's furniture. Well, one day her sister's husband's home, they come and knocking for the furniture because she hasn't been making payments. They throw her out. They're like, you're out of here. Now, most people at this point would kind of say, you know what? This isn't really working out. But this is at a time when you could change your name at will. You know, now we're tagged with social security numbers, all these IDs, electronic identification. Then nothing. So she changes her name to Madame Devere. She becomes a clairvoyant. And this is at a time in the 20th century where people are starting to question God and the whole religious thing because, you know, there's all this materialism around. They want to talk to the dead. And that's what Madame Devere will do for you for a fee. You can talk to the dead. Cassie Chadwick became an excellent con artist over time. A lot of trial and error. She's kind of people all over town. She meets a doctor in the early 1880s. She's this beautiful woman, has a desire to live the good life. She starts scamming this doctor, William Springsteen, racking up huge expenditures. Dr. Springsteen gets suspicious, and he hires a private investigator. They're married for 12 days or something until the PI comes back with her sketchy scam artist past. They're divorced. She marries a farmer in Trumbull County. She's living a more simple life, but she hates it. One day, she simply goes to an attorney in in Youngstown, gets a divorce. She comes back to Cleveland, becomes Lydia Scott, and that husband dies, leaving her some money. She moves to Cleveland again as Madame Lydia Devere. Madame Devere living a lavish lifestyle. Connie Mann using her feminine wiles to get money from them. But she's arrested in 1889 for forgery and sentenced to nine years. Then Governor and future President William McKinley signs her parole papers after she serves four. It's here that she becomes Cassie, Cassie Hoover. But all the while, Cassie has been duping men and banks into lending her money, and she becomes a pro. William Hazelgrove discusses Cassie's understanding of the corrupt and reckless banking practices of the Gilded Age and how being a woman in the 19th century naturally had men underestimating her to their own detriment. It's weird how she understood the greed of these bankers and the way the system worked, which was, again, perceived wealth. And this is a time when bankers gave kickbacks, right, where actually the person getting the loan would kick back money to the banker, $10,000, $20,000, whatever, exorbitant interest rates. Now, she's a woman, so they think she has no idea what she's doing. You know, women don't have to vote, and they're thinking, we'll hit her with 20 30%. She'll never know the difference. And she doesn't care. 
<laughs> and so she takes that money and runs. And of course, jumping ahead a little, she will write very sophisticated trust documents, you know, yeah. that pass muster through for the 1%. I mean, when she starts really going for the con, um, she is putting up sophisticated trust documents, uh, sophisticated drafts on banks that people view as authentic. And this is strange that she she is self-taught. She didn't finish high school, that she had this, this understanding, but she also understood avarice and greed and how, you know, these bankers would basically do anything to get a big kickback. And of course, you know, what her ultimate con, she'll put all that together. Cassie was running what some would say was a brothel. She's a madam. She'd say it was a legitimate massage and spiritual center, but regardless, it's here she meets and steals the heart of a rich Cleveland doctor named Dr. Leroy Chadwick. They get married in 1897 in Cleveland, and she moves into his mansion on East 82nd and Euclid Avenue, on Cleveland's revered Millionaire's Row. William Hazelgrove tells us how Cassie Chadwick landed her big fish. She basically is running a massage parlor, and it really is, you know, people have rheumatism at this time, and there are no drugs. So Dr. Chadwick is a renowned physician who lives on Millionaire's Row, which is where all the one percenters live. But his wife died. He has to take care of his mother, his daughter. He needs somebody to run the house, really. Well, he goes to Madame De Beer's massage parlor. He meets this woman. She tells him, I'm an heiress. I'm just doing this. But I really have a lot of money. And so he thinks, Wow. And she's very attractive at this point. And they get married. And so now she's Mrs. Chadwick. And you would think for most people, okay, so she's living on Millionaire's Row. She has several cars, servants, good deal of money, a lot of latitude to do whatever she wants. You would think that's enough. You know, most people are like, you know what? I came from nothing. I changed my name a few times. I've been in jail several times. You know what? I made it. You know, I, this is good enough. But that's not Cassie Chadwick. Millionaire's Row in Cleveland. The names are from past episodes of our show, Rockefeller, Flagler, Mark Hanna, Massa Stone, Samuel Mather, Charles Brush. You might remember from this season's Thomas Edison episode, Brush, the, the great proponent of arc lighting. My favorite, John Hay. Go to listen to our episode on John Hay, Ohio versus the Gilded Age. It's called one of my favorites. He was Lincoln's private secretary during the Civil War as a young man, and Teddy Roosevelt's secretary of state as an old man. In between, he married into some rich Cleveland railroad money, lived on Euclid Avenue for many years. Cassie starts spending the good doctor's money like it's going out of style. Trips, diamonds, furniture, servants. But she's clearly new money. She buys 12 grand pianos for her party guests at this big lavish party she has as her coming out party as Mrs. Cassie Chadwick. But there's some of the most rich, refined, snobby families in the whole country there. And they see right through her. Quite frankly, they think she's weird. That party would be the last time most of the who's who of high society Cleveland would ever come to the Chadwick residence. William Hazelgrove joins us to talk about Cassie Chadwick, the Cleveland socialite. Is this some sort of compulsion? Is this something that is just in her? Because immediately she starts spending all his money so much so that he becomes alarmed and says, you know what? I'm going to Europe for a while and I'm going to take my daughter with me. And he starts to secretly move money to Europe, leaving her by herself. 
which for her is just fine. And by the way, she has a big party. She's the new money wife. And so she buys all this furniture and opulence and has all these lavish doings and invites everybody from Millionaire's Rover. And everybody thinks she's just a hillbilly and that she's sort of insane. And maybe a clue to Cassie Chadwick is one reason there's never enough money is because she never feels good about herself. She never feels like she, you know, measures up. When Chadwick, you know, says, hey, I'm I'm out of here. She's sort of left on her own. And this is where she starts to come up with her greatest con. Cassie's greatest con begins with a carriage ride to a mansion in Manhattan. It's incredible how far this little trip would get her. Mrs. Chadwick and an unwitting acquaintance take a trip to the house of the richest man in America. Cassie knocks on the door and walks right in. Cassie Chadwick's greatest con is underway. She has acquaintances through her husband. She goes to New York and she arranges for a guy named John Dillon to meet her at the train station. And he's a financial lawyer plugged in. She says, can you give me a ride to my father's house? He's like, sure. Take the carriage, go to Fifth Avenue. And they stop in front of this immense mansion. And, you know, John Dillon's mouth drops open and she gets out and says, I'll be right back. So she goes in, talks to a maid for about 25 minutes, just killing time. Turns around, comes back. And when she's getting in the carriage, she drops a big envelope at John Dillon's feet and a trust agreement comes out and he picks it up and looks at it. And she says, I got to tell you something. You can't tell anybody. This is a very dark secret, but this is my father. I'm the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. You know, I'm due to inherit everything, everything. And so, you know, this Dylan looks at the trust agreements and saying, basically, she's going to inherit the Carnegie fortune. He says, I'll never tell anybody. But of course, he tells everybody. And so this goes right through the banking community, that this woman who lives up on Millionaire's Row is actually the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie, the richest man in America. Somehow we've never discussed him on this show almost 100 episodes in, no Carnegie. He's an unwilling participant in this story, but Cassie's brought him into this con story we have to know the story of Andrew Carnegie to understand the rest of Cassie's greatest con. Sure, he's mostly a Pittsburgh guy, but he's really a Scottish immigrant. We already told one immigrant story in this episode with Cassie coming from Canada, but Carnegie becomes the head of the steel industry, despite coming from almost nothing in western Pennsylvania. It's just over the border here from Ohio. How does a working class immigrant become the richest man in the United States? That's the Gilded Age for you. Our second guest on today's show and as a repeat guest, his first time this season, I think, Bruce Carlson, the host of the great My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. Bruce has been doing this politics and history show since 2006, one of the originators of the genre. Go to MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com or check him out on AirwaveMedia.com. Bruce joined us from his home in New Jersey to talk about how Carnegie goes from a child worker at a factory all the way to the top. A Scottish immigrant, you know, he's born in Scotland, family is very poor. Father is a weaver, mother selling like meat pies. When they moved to Allegheny City in, in uh, Pennsylvania, and he immediately gets work in the industry that the family know. In fact, it knows, and that's the garment industry. And in fact, really the cotton in the cotton mill. And really uh, his father and Andrew Carnegie get a job in the same mill. And so Andrew Carnegie's story is definitely a story of child labor. That was very common. It was the sustenance, really, of American industry and industry in Europe at the time. It wasn't like 
it was better there. One of those many faceless child laborers working at the cotton mill, he's noticed by the manufacturer of the bobbins, which is where the the thread loops around when making uh, fabric. And um, he says, oh, this is a very industrious kid. I need someone for my bobbin factory. And so he's picked up and he actually starts working at that factory. Very stressful job. Very stressful. A bobbin boy. Bobbin boy. What I love about interviewing Bruce Carlson is I can ask him a really broad question like, how did Andrew Carnegie rise out of obscurity and become the leading steel magnate in the world? Oh, and Bruce, I need your answer in less than two minutes. Much like our previous subject this season, Carnegie breaks into the business world like Thomas Edison did as a telegraph boy. Makes a lot of money on stock tips, what we would call insider trading today. But Bruce tells us the story of the rise of Andrew Carnegie. Steel is big because railroads are big. And you have the largest use of steel prior to the invention of skyscrapers, say, is railroads. They're, They're badly needed for railroads, which are expanding all across the country. By the time you're going to get to, say, the period right before World War I, we have enough railroad in the United States to go from here to the moon. There is a step before he gets involved in steel, and that is that uh, he becomes a first a telegraph messenger boy, and then it just seems that he has a knack for this. He's noticed by people. But he also has a little bit of a support system that his uncle um, helps him Uh, get the job as a telegraph messenger boy. So he gets out of that nerve wracking job, you know, maintaining the, uh, the, the manufacturing engine. Um, He's so good at it that he can take messages by ear and then transmit it into the machine, which at the time was unusual. You referenced it before the telegraph is the vehicle for so many a tech, you you might call them the tech people of their day, were the telegraph operators. And so you see Edison and you see Carnegie. And actually, I'll give you another name is Sears. Uh, Richard Sears, the um, developer of the retail store, starts as a tele- telegraph. It, it earns them enough money and puts them in connection with networks of people. And it brings them out. You know, he he notes this marvelous change when he becomes a telegraph operator, that he's now in an office with books and pens and papers. And sometimes there's no messages to transmit. So he's allowed to read the books and learn even more. So I think that's um, it's a job that fosters other opportunities. And he he gets them, um, particularly he's noticed by um, the head of a railroad, Scott. You know, he's informed that uh, there's an opportunity to buy some shares in a company. Oh, right. That's really where he gets his start as a capitalist, using money that the mother borrows on the house. He buys at first 10 shares of a transportation company, and then that's his first investment. And he keeps making more and more as he goes on. And it it, it turns out to be a nice, a good investment that earns actually earns the family revenue. So it's like when he gets this first check, he's amazed that coming from the family he comes from, that money can produce money, that it's not just labor that can produce money. Wow, you can get money from just having put your capital into something. And it's a lesson that he won't forget. Andrew Carnegie was a child laborer, vocally defended some unions during his career, 
but he cements his legacy when it comes to labor unions and workers' rights in the Homestead Strike of 1892, just outside of Pittsburgh. In what was one of the pivotal moments in U.S. labor history, it was this epic battle between the amalgamated steelworkers at the Homestead Steelworks, owned by Carnegie, involved in a battle with Pinkerton agents hired by the company following a strike. As their contract came up, the workers at the plant saw the plant's operations expanding, but their pay had been frozen. The workers wanted a raise, and the plant and the plant's operator, Henry Clay Frick, he had other plans. For all the lip service you might say about being positive about unions, when it actually comes to Carnegie negotiating with unions, unions, he's pretty rough. But there again, there are two sides to that. He's willing to negotiate with them. There are some people who aren't. He's willing to say, if, if this group of workers wants to sit down and talk to me as one person or as a hundred people, you know, we'll talk to them. So he doesn't have a problem with unions in essence, but once it actually gets started, he his specific dealings with unions are a lot more tense. Now, this is 1892. And at this point, he's living in Scotland. And Henry Clay Frick is, who's also an industrialist on his own and quite rich, is managing his business. And um, he gives instructions to Frick to break the union. Frick is, doesn't need to be told. He's, he's, he's not somebody who starts with any kind of pro-union attitude that maybe even Carnegie had. When that union uh, threatens strike, they go into negotiations. So the first thing Frick does is after getting the telegram from Carnegie that he can break the union is he he offers them 22% reduction in salary. That's where they start negotiations. Now, <laughs> I haven't had too much experience with union negotiation. I was There was a short time I was a police commissioner in a in a, uh, a civilian police commissioner for a temporary time in a town. Um, you don't start a union negotiation with something like that. We're going to mm. decrease your salary 22%. At the end of June 1892, the workers were locked out. Henry Clay Frick, who'd been running the plant, had been militarizing it for months. Sniper nests were built. Water cannons at the front gates were installed. And a week or so later on July 6th, it all came to a head. As hundreds of armed Pinkerton agents hired by Frick, moved in by boat along the Monongahela River east of Pittsburgh. Strikers were armed too and waiting for him. A battle ensued. Gunshots were exchanged. The strikers even wheeled in a cannon and began firing on these boats. The homestead strike was something entirely different than America had seen before. The struggle between labor and capital had exploded at homestead. The gulf between the haves and the have-nots, the complete lack of labor laws and the government's refusal to step in, had finally come to a head on the shores of the Monongahela River in western Pennsylvania. And all of this had occurred on Andrew Carnegie's watch. The union goes on strike. They have immediate plans to send uh, scab workers, mostly from the South. Some of them are African-American. This leads to some racial tensions and violence and things like that. But essentially, the, the plan of Frick and Carnegie, really Frick, is to send Pinkerton strike breakers and also to lock up the homestead strike. They call it Fort Frick because he's got barbed wire all over the place. Locks out all the workers, doesn't let any of them work, and brings in replacement. Actually, the union workers fight back. And when the Pinkerton detectives, I'm really good at they're they're more than detectives. They're kind of armed strike breakers. When they <laughs> attempt to reach the plant by water, they stop the boats from even arriving. And they start shooting. There's fire back and forth. A few Pinkertons are killed. Some workers are killed. Eventually, the Pinkertons are in a tougher situation than the workers. They have to surrender. 
And so they're allowed passage into a local jail and the workers take over the plant. And so this strike continues for some time. The strike and the lockout continued with temporary workers, but Frick and Carnegie could not go on like this forever. State militia had been called out to quell any future violence, but when an anarchist sneaks into Frick's office and shoots him and tries to stab him, the public support changes for the strikers. We talk with Bruce Carlson about the strike failing and the human toll of the Carnegie Steel Company's war against the union at Homestead. An unfortunate incident happens where an anarchist, a Russian anarchist who is not connected at all to the steelworkers, he's a 23-year-old kind of trying to make his name for himself in radical circles, say, takes a shot at Henry Frick. The pushback on that is so strong that the, the, there's political power there for the governor to summon the militia, the National Guard, break the strike, and uh, all the workers are fired. Some of them are prosecuted. So that strike is completely broken. And those who do take jobs back are at dramatically reduced wages. And yeah. maybe two of them were killed and about seven workers. I think a few more killed in violence later than some of the scab workers might have been hurt. So there's going to be about 10 total killed, but a lot of wounded, and a lot of uh, anger and a lot of bloodshed. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. As we get back to Cassie's story, the word about her being Carnegie's illegitimate daughter has spread across the upper echelon of Cleveland banking and high society. She starts to capitalize on the chatter and she begins seeking out other major targets to get wrapped up in her scheme. She goes to the Wade Park Bank, Wade Park on the hill just east of downtown, kind of the university circle area if you're familiar with Cleveland at all. It's where the Western Reserve Historical Society is today. Great spot. I checked it out this summer. Wade Park is another rich area on the east side of Cleveland at the turn of the century. It's home to the Rockefeller's big mansion. She meets with Ira Reynolds at the Wade Park Bank and hands him a package that she wants in a safety deposit box. But Reynolds, a bigwig in Cleveland, already knows Cassie's secret. She's the true heir to the Carnegie fortune. It's crazy to think how stupid some of these men were to fall for Cassie Chadwick, and also how little had changed in nearly 100 years since our last episode about our last con artist, John Spano. Thanks to everyone who gave that fun episode a listen last month, but we bring back William Hazelwood to see how Cassie Chadwick games the misogynistic, arrogant world of Gilded Age banking and walks out of the Wade Park Bank with a $5 million line of credit. She, you know, sort of has to build up her con. She goes to see a guy named Ira Reynolds. And Ira Reynolds works for the Wade Park Bank. She comes in with this package and says, basically, you know what? In here's all these securities, $5 million worth. I need to put them in a bank. Tells him the whole story about being the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. Reynolds says, well, you know, I should probably open this. And he, she says, you doubt my word. You know, this is early 20th century. Decorum is very important. And he, he says, no, I would never doubt the word of a lady. And he takes it, puts it in his vault, and gives her a, a basically a line of credit for $5 million. You know, and Cassie understands this. He under, she understands all these niceties will be observed. She understands that men look down on women. They think they're brainless, that, you know, 
There's no way they could ever pull a con. They won't step over certain lines. So she uses this to, you know, get this line of credit. Cassie's borrowing money from banks and her spending sprees are legendary. She's in Europe. She's in New York. She's dropping cash in Cleveland. She works over the owner of the Citizens Bank of Oberlin, a poor guy named Charles Beckwith. President Beckwith smitten with her, I guess. I don't know. He falls for her con hook, line, and sinker. He even gives $50,000 from the Oberlin College Endowment Fund and another $100,000 of his own money. William Hazelwood tells us about Cassie Chadwick's takedown of the Oberlin Bank. Beckwith is a classic 19th century banker. He's built his bank up. He knows his investors. He's known in the town. He walks to the bank every morning with his cane, you know, saying hello to everybody. And he's been very conservative. Well, one rainy night, this woman comes into his office and she tells him this incredible story, how she's actually the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. But she needs a place to put the, his fortune when she gets it. And his bank is just perfect for this. And Beckwith is skeptical. But then she says, I also approached other banks. And by the way, I have a $5 million line of credit with the Wade Park Bank. And she's very smart that she triangulates, you know, so she uses one bank against the other. So suddenly Beckwith's like, oh, my God, this woman is who she say, says she is. And she says, you know, I just need some small loans along the way. My dad is, you know, he's kind of tight. Okay. And so she, she does. She pulls for a small loan from Beckwith. Now, the Oberlin Bank is a small bank. So this is before the FDIC insured banks, right? So today, you and I put our money in a bank. And let's say the bank fails. If you ever seen It's a Wonderful Life, we've seen that, you know, scene where the bank fails and everybody's running to get their money. Well, that's what happened during the Great Depression, right? All these banks failed. And people are here like, the bank's failing. Boom, give me my money. Well, guess what? After 10 people hit the bank, the bank was cleaned out. And so the bank failed. And those people are out of money. Well, this Beckwith is so taken with her. He basically lends her all his depositors' money and $100,000 of his own money. Oberlin Bank fails. And this is the reason that Cassie Chadwick's empire came tumbling down. Pretty quickly, Cassie stops repaying her loans from the Citizens Bank of Oberlin. The bank president, Charles Beckwith, is quickly out of money to cover its deposits. There's victims in Cassie Chadwick's greed and lavish spending. The Oberlin Bank fails, and this brings much unwanted attention to Cassie. Unwanted government attention. We talk with William Hazelwood about how Cassie's destruction of the Citizens Bank of Oberlin begins her own fall, and it takes Beckwith and a cashier at the bank, A.P. Spear, with her. Real people lost money. You know, normal middle-class people, and politically, that's really bad. So somebody's got to pay for it. So that's when the feds get interested. They start trailing her. And they think Beckwith is in on it and Spears. They think it's a conspiracy. Because how could this banker be taken in by this woman, give her all his money and then 100000 of his own money? And, you know, jump ahead a little bit. Beckwith dies before the trial because he's, he's indicted, basically. He's a broken man. But he goes to see her in jail with his wife. And he says, you know, I still believe you are who you say you are and that you'll make good. That's how much he couldn't believe he'd been duped. You know, that, and you know, later people would say she had a hypnotic quality with her eyes. All these men would say that she would hypnotize people to sort of account for 
the reason all these people gave her all this money. And, you know, Beckwith was a real tragic figure because he was clearly taken in and it destroyed him. You know, I mean, his life was destroyed by her. As the investigation closes in on her, the newspapers start reporting on her as well. This story sells. A beautiful woman, an heiress, is somehow getting the most powerful men in Northeast Ohio banking and elsewhere to give her vast sums of money, and she's not paying them back. She gets nearly a $200,000 loan from a bank in Boston. But that banker, a man named Harold Newton, he discovers her other issues and believes that these securities and these guarantee notes from Carnegie are all forgeries. Cassie Chadwick, the bejeweled heiress to Andrew Carnegie's fortune, is almost out of time. And when you read the articles, they're very salacious. Um, one, they find a housekeeper of hers who said that when bankers would come to visit her, they'd go back into her boudoir and then reemerge. So the inference was she'd go out and have sex with these bankers and this is how she's getting her money. And also it went with the lot, the reasoning that, you know, women aren't smart enough to pull this off. They can only use sex to do it. And there was a guy named Newton. Newton was actually the guy who brings her down. Yeah. Newton, you know, he, he lends her 190,000 when she doesn't pay, he hires a private detective who discovers all the other loans. He sees it's a house of cards. And, she, and he believed to his dying day that there was a man behind the scam, that there's no way a woman could come up with this and, you know, bamboozle all these sophisticated bankers. So, you know, but Cassie did use her attraction, her, you know, her feminine wiles, if you will, because, you know, she understood the power of, of using sex to get what she wanted from him. And also the fact that these men were basically lending on perceived wealth. You know, perception was reality. So she went in there with all this jewelry, which she always did. She literally had diamonds hanging off her. Cassie's still running her scam. She's telling everyone she'll pay, she'll pay. She's enormously wealthy. Just relax, you'll get your money. But she's almost run out of funds at this point. William Hazelwood explains to us just how lavish and wasteful she was with these millions of dollars she'd stolen through fraud. The feds are looking to take down Cassie Chadwick. But before they do, so is Charles Beckworth, the desperate president of the Citizens Bank of Oberlin. He shows up to her mansion on Millionaire's Row with a gun, and he wants answers. Beckworth became desperate because she wasn't paying him. And his bank's about to fail. So he gets a gun and he goes to her mansion on Millionaire's Row. You know, you would think he's got the gun to point it at her and say, hey, pay up. But no, he pulls out the gun and says, I'm going to shoot myself if you don't pay me. And she says, well, if you shoot yourself, you won't get paid anyway. So, I mean, you know, but what she would do when he would come over is he'd see jewelry everywhere. You know, he'd see paintings. He'd see grand piano so you think oh yeah she's got the money she's gonna pay me but she didn't she would just move on to the next bank she went to a guy named pastor eaton and pastor eaton was sort of the pastor to the wealthy the rockefellers and everybody so she tells him the tragic story of she's really a legitimate daughter of andrew carnegie and she you know needs some short-term cash and could he get her into some circles that could give it to her. Well, Eaton says, of course I can. And he actually refers her into New York banking and to Newton, who actually undoes her, uh, his, her, who is her undoing. 
Beckwith, Ira Reynolds, Eaton. She sort of uses these three people, you know, to keep moving around. And she hops from bank to bank to bank to bank to bank, just pulling money, pulling money. For appearances, she'll make the first payments, kind of string something along, and then she'll stop paying. You know, at a point, she'll stop paying and just move on. And, you know, she would go on these incredible European vacations. She would buy immense amounts of jewelry, extra cars, lots of servants. I mean, she just spent and spent and spent and spent. She literally left all these diamonds in a hotel room in New York. And they called her up and said, oh, oh Miss Chadwick, you left all this very fine jewelry behind. She was, oh, that's okay. You can keep it. Why would she say that? Well, because to show she needed it would show she wasn't as wealthy as everybody thought. It was very important for people to think that she had immense amounts of money. On December 7th, 1904, Cassie Chadwick is arrested by U.S. Marshals at a fancy hotel in New York City. Our guest William Hazelwood's book, Greed in the Gilded Age, actually opens with the carriage chase through Manhattan where authorities finally catch up with her. She's wearing a belt, it's reported, with some $100,000 in cash on her body when she's arrested. Cassie was trying to make a run for it, probably by boat from New York. By now, the names of men like Charles Beckwith, Ira Reynolds, the Boston banker Newton who discovered these forgeries, they're on the front page of newspapers across the country and all these Cassie Chadwick stories as well. Not just because a woman has perpetrated this elaborate con, but because of her claim that she's the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie, the richest man in America. We never really finished his story of how he became the richest man at a time of really, really rich men. Bruce Carlson rejoins the show to share the story of the creation of U.S. Steel and the famous buyout of Carnegie by none other than J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan and Associates decide to get into steel. Well, first, they want to buy Carnegie's steel company. He won't sell initially. So then they decide to get into steel and form Federal Steel. And that's a group of whatever companies were available to buy up. Not only do they do that, but they want to put Carnegie now out of business. And so they start buying up or otherwise intimidating Carnegie's customers, which are the cable, the railroads, the cable and wire business, and things like that. And Morgan's makes um, his money and his associates make his money from railroads. Carnegie opts for a complete and total war rather than selling. And what he does is says, I'll build my own railroad. I don't need your railroad. I can build a railroad myself that can go from my steel mills to the markets in Philadelphia and New York and other places. So it takes a while. There's... um you know, some steam on either side. And then they finally agree. Morgan's a, a smart man. He does business a different way than other people might do it today. He says to Carnegie's assistant, name your price, write it down on a piece of paper. Carnegie writes it down, $480 million, which <laughs> today, I don't know, I have one calculation, 69 billion. You know, what the value of things over time, we don't calculate that appropriately. You'll hear people say things in CPI terms. Well, that doesn't work. Too many items are subsidized and it, it doesn't really hold. But if you look at a laborer's hour and that um, and that standard, it's about $69 billion today. Andrew Carnegie's gone from a bob and boy making $1.20 a week to $69 billion. Some estimates are even higher than that. That makes him clearly the richest man in America. Bruce Carlson answers the question that we had. How is Carnegie the richest man in America when Morgan is the one who bought him out? You would assume Morgan is the richest man in America. At least we did. Carnegie um, makes this offer figuring probably like this is an outlandish number. And 
you know, I'll either I've established my position and we'll move on. JP Morgan agrees. And see, JP Morgan doesn't haggle. He says, find out a man's price and either pay it or say it's not worth it and don't pay it. He's not, he does not negotiate or haggle. People are shocked. His own assistants, Gary and the other assistants to Morgan are like, are you sure you want to do this? Absolutely. This is going to be a great deal. And of course, it was a great deal. They form US Steel out of it. Frick gets involved actually with JP Morgan now. So Carnegie is now the richest man in America. And that was something I learned because the first question you might have is, well, wait a second, JP Morgan, isn't he the richest man in America? No, he just made Carnegie the richest man in America. Morgan, strangely enough, had his money, but he wasn't anywhere near the richest man in America, really at any time and stuff. So he actually makes Carnegie the richest man. Andrew Carnegie is being besieged by reporters about this woman in Cleveland that he claims he's never met. He's saying it's all nonsense. He's not going to go to Cleveland for this trial of the century it's shaping up to happen in 1905, the United States versus Cassie Chadwick. William Hazelwood describes the similarities between Carnegie and Chadwick, or Elizabeth Bigley, as she was born. Two immigrant stories, rags to riches, but in very different ways. Worked his way up. That's his story. He had this parallel story of Elizabeth Bigley, who has also come to the country with nothing and who you know, will amass $60 million. And so, you know, in, in strange ways, they do parallel each other as they go. And Carnegie, you know, he did have heirs. Um, also, Carnegie famously didn't write drafts on, on, his, on his money. He would have access to cash all the time. And so when Cassie starts to pull her con, it's all these drafts that are being pulled. Carnegie's interviewed by the newspaper and they say, well, is she your illegitimate daughter? And he says, don't be absurd. Who would believe that? And they said, well, a lot of people believe it if you don't go to the trial because he was being subpoenaed for the trial. He says, that's absurd. He goes, I, I haven't written a draft for 30 years. They have a handwriting expert, you know, compare these forged documents with his own handwriting, and they could see they are very different. They are very different. But, you know, the, I wrote this book from newspaper articles, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them because, think about it. Here's this guy who looks like Santa Claus. I mean, Carnegie was only five foot tall, and he has this big white beard, and he's the richest man in America. And suddenly this woman comes out of left field who's of the 1%. I mean, the pictures of her are this matriarch, bejeweled matriarch, saying, that's my father. Well, that's all over front page. It knocks Teddy Roosevelt's inauguration off. And so this all gears up for this trial of the century. And again, it's a media circus. The papers across the country were focused on two stories on March 5th, 1905. One, the inauguration of a charismatic president, Theodore Roosevelt, in Washington, D.C. The second, and somehow even bigger story, was the start of the Cassie Chadwick trial. Word is that Carnegie may appear and face his alleged daughter in open court. Many Americans believe that Chadwick's innocent. There's simply no way a woman could be the mastermind of such a gigantic fraud. It's just not possible. She must be a pawn for men who are behind the scenes pulling the levers of power and finance, somehow steal this money themselves. I don't know. But according to William Hazelwood, 
The Chadwick story was above the fold on the front page, and Roosevelt, one of the most famous Americans of all time, certainly the most famous American of his day, his triumphant day of inauguration and his speech at the Capitol was bumped by this story of sex, greed, and fraud. You know, she ends up in jail in the tombs in uh, New York, Manhattan, which my book, as you know, opens with her being chased through Manhattan. Yeah, it's a good scene. She, she can get a better shake in Cleveland. So she goes there, and that's going to be the trial of the century. Now, Carnegie's been besieged by reporters, and he gets subpoenaed, and he's kind of, I'm not sure where to go. I've got a lumbago. I've got all these problems. Finally, he figures he better go because, you know, people might actually believe her. So he does. On March 6, 1905, the trial starts in downtown Cleveland. A mob of media are there, and Andrew Carnegie takes the stand. Finally, these two are in the same room as each other. We'll let William Hazelwood take it from there. It is covered by all these reporters all over the country, all over the world, actually. And um, they're all there, and they have those that flash, you know, powder flash, the zinc or whatever it was, a potassium nitrate that would is going off all over the places people are walking in. And uh, Carnegie comes in his private rail car, and, you know, everybody's just a, you know, a stir that Andrew Carnegie's going to show up in court. And so he does. He comes to court, and it's silent in the room. He walks in. He's a small guy. He's a little man. And he walks across the courtroom, and all the reporters report on this. So this is what's great about doing it from newspaper articles, because it's a you are there. And they said he sat down and said Cassie Chadwick wasn't looking at him at all, wouldn't look at him. And that, you know, she was just sort of looking bored with her hand, you know, leaning on her chin in her hand. And then he, they said that suddenly she sort of turned and met his eye and he stared at her. And Carnegie later wrote, you know, that when he stared at her, what he saw was greed, avarice. And he also saw a ruthless intent to do whatever it takes. And in that way, you know, he, he has this epiphanic moment where he's like, well, this bitch is me. The country is just enthralled with this case. The testimony's riveting. The case is almost entirely just about a conspiracy with Beckwith, the cashier spears at the Oberlin Bank, and her other crimes are, are largely on the periphery in this case. Carnegie denies making the notes. A handwriting expert seems to confirm that these notes were drafted by someone else other than Carnegie. They're forgeries. William Hazelwood sums up some of the writing and reflecting done by journalists at this trial, and how this was almost certainly the way the Gilded Age would end. A nation's pursuit of wealth over nearly everything had created Cassie Chadwick. It had even created Andrew Carnegie. She had amassed all this money with nothing, with no education. And what had Carnegie done? He had amassed all this money with no education, who'd come from Scotland, dirt poor, and worked his way up. She came with nothing, you know, stay with her sister, and then she's on Millionaire's Row. So yes, very different paths, if you will, but in the winner-take-all environment of the Gilded Age, and, and it really was. I mean, there was no tax, no income tax at all. There was immense amounts of wealth being created by a new uh, group of people that they were called the 400, 400 richest families, where they were making money off of all these people working in foundries and factories who they would never see. And this became national markets came after the Civil War. 
before you'd go sell your corn in your town, your local town. Now you put your corn in a boxcar and be sold off in Chicago, you know, or New York or wherever or you order from New York. So national markets created immense amounts of money where you had this new, new money class. People all believe that, you know, they could get it too. Millionaire, that term was, was just coined. And the term conspicuous consumption was also a new term that was being batted around. So in this environment, this is what Cassie Chadwick and Andrew Carnegie were operating in. And so here is this one who, who did what most people wanted to do, who created immense amounts of money virtually overnight. Carnegie was exonerated in the press and in the court of law. As you think about Carnegie's complicated legacy today, we asked Bruce Carlson about his connection to the tech giants of the Bezos, the Bill Gates of today. Carnegie gave away so much of his fortune. His life of philanthropy following the sale of Carnegie Steel to Morgan is pretty exceptional. His love of reading led him to give money to nearly 2,000 libraries across the country to be started to these cities. He largely created the free public library system we all enjoy today. And to science, he gave millions, and his endowment still makes giant donations. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace builds the World Court in The Hague in the Netherlands. We still see the impacts of his philanthropy today. He gave some $125 million to colleges and universities. It said he gave away 90% of his wealth. Bruce Carlson talks about that legacy and its comparisons to the mega-wealthy today. So there's a lot of similarities between the income gaps between some of these very rich men and normal Americans. The sale occurs in 1901, and this is when he really starts his period of being a philanthropist. And the Carnegie Endowment itself starts officially in 1911, and it still exists today. In a lot of ways, I see in Carnegie, both in his industrial period and in the period afterward, an analogy to the tech giants. I think like, uh, and don't just think Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and uh, yeah Zuckerberg. These are kind of the easy examples. So these tech companies, of which those are some examples to me, are really where the industrialists are today. And you really see that even Wall Street is at the whim in a lot of ways, the tech companies. And then you see the same trend too, where there's philanthropy going on. That's great. You know, money's needed. We need, everyone needs help. Um, There's a lot of projects to fund. On the other hand, you see the same questions raised about Carnegie that are raised about tech giants today in their money. Like, and, and the first one is, well, could you have reduced prices while you were making the money or paid your average workers more while you were making the money or hired more people? Um, and that's what they asked of Carnegie. You know, when some of these union guys who had been closed out of Homestead, you know, were confronted with the philanthropist Carnegie, the, the reaction of many of them was, well, maybe if he had paid people a little more, he wouldn't have to be giving out all this money now. And that is constantly a question that's asked, and you see it asked of the of the new tech philanthropist as well. Cassie Chadwick was convicted of conspiracy against the United States and conspiracy to wreck Citizens National Bank of Oberlin on March 10, 1905. She's sentenced to 14 years in the Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus. That's a site that was torn down in the 1990s to make way for the Arena District and Nationwide Arena, the home of our beloved Columbus Blue Jackets today. Within months of her being incarcerated, though, she's forgotten. Her 15 minutes are up. She quickly deteriorates in jail. She dies on her 50th birthday 
October 7, 1907, two years or so after being convicted. She dies in Columbus. We ask William Hazelwood to read the final passage of his great book from this year, Greed in the Gilded Age, The Brilliant Con of Cassie Chadwick. There's a link in the show notes to buy the book. It's a great read, available on Audible as well if you're an audiobook person. We leave you with his summation of Cassie Chadwick, one of America's most brilliant con women. In the end, Cassie Chadwick reached up very far and ended up with millions. The truth is, Elizabeth Bigley came to the poker table with nothing. No chips, no backing, no heritage. An immigrant who left with the other players' wallets. That is a sign of either a brilliant woman or at least a brilliant con. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation, obviously, is Greed in the Gilded Age, the brilliant con of Cassie Chadwick by our guest William Hazelwood, released in February of 2022. It's one of the first books about Chadwick in the 115 years since she died. Hazelwood's an author whose other books we've thoroughly enjoyed. Like we said, the book starts with this chase through the streets of Manhattan as Cassie and her son try to evade the U.S. Marshals looking to arrest her. And he bounces around like that throughout the book. It's a fun read, and like we said, there's a link in the show notes to buy it. Remind you, uh, you can also buy it at audible.com. For those of you who, who prefer audiobooks, sometimes I definitely do. But we asked him about some of these literary devices he used in the book to make Cassie's story come to life. It feels almost stressful when you read how Cassie's getting deeper and deeper into the con. And there's clearly just no way out. Not that you feel sorry for her. She's almost completely remorseless when, from what I can tell. But she lived her dream and felt she was been wronged by the government when they put a stop to it. I started to put it together from newspaper accounts, which is a very different way uh, to do it. Uh, you know, usually I get all the secondary sources and primary sources and read them. But newspapers, you know, were really interesting because they were written the day of. They talked to her or they did, you know, so, and they aren't, cha- haven't been changed. I mean, the, the, you know, the grammar they use, the words they use, it's all very gritty and hard boiled. And, and, but it really gave me first, firsthand insight. You know, I wrote a book uh, that also came out this year called 160 Minutes to Race to Rescue the RMS Titanic. And, in all my books, I use a couple of devices. One is, you know, sort of a two-track narration where you have two lines of stories developing at the same time. And what that allows you to, me to do is all these things going on at once that sort of coalesce at the end. You know, all sort of comes together in your mind at the end. But also, it's the sense of all these things are happening at once, and they're all like spinning wheels are going to are going to keep contributing to to what's happening. And that's why I like, you know, jumping over here, jumping over there, jumping over here, jumping over there. And that'll do it for episode 11. Hope you enjoyed our Gilded Age story that is really starting to see the light of day in wake of all these con artist stories on our TVs and streaming services. 
the Cassie Chadwick story is, is really reemerging. Go buy William Hazelwood's book, Greed in the Gilded Age, and also check out his book, Madam President, as well, uh, about Edith Wilson, our first and only female president. That's the wife of a stroke victim, Woodrow Wilson. Just a, a really excellent story that, that you're probably going to hear more about in the future. Special thanks to Bruce Carlson, the host of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, one of our favorite shows. Go subscribe to it today. He releases episodes, it seems, at least once a week, if not more, all year round. Really incredible. Uh, great guy, great historian. It's fun to see him on C-SPAN back in August. He's being interviewed for a while, take calls on their show, Washington Journal. Uh, I'm a big C-SPAN on the weekend. They have great history programs on there. It's so cool to see Bruce on there. And he's had me on for a few episodes on his show, so you can go to his podcast feed. Again, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. That's it. Well, that's almost it. One episode left to go in 2022. Season 7, been a hell of a ride. Thanks to our friends at Evergreen Podcast Network. You can go to evergreenpodcast.com to hear all their great shows. All our past episodes are on there as well. And looks like our season premiere early next year will be episode 100. So we're going to have to plan something fun for that. But first, we have our Season 7 finale. We're not going to tell you what that one's about. Uh, but I can tell you the episode's going to be fun. Definitely one you're going to want to look forward to. Do me a favor, one favor this season. Scroll down if you're on your phone. Give us a five-star review. You can re- you write a review as, as well. But just scrolling down and giving us that five-star takes one to two seconds on your iPhone. But it'd be ever so helpful for the show as we continue to try and grow this audience. Yeah, I know it's been seven seasons, almost five years, maybe, I guess, more than five years of doing the show. Uh, don't forget to share our show with your friends and your family as well. That's the easiest, most organic way to share the show and to grow the show is word of mouth. We got one more episode for you. We can't wait to bring it to you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Season 7. We'll see you. Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.